Good morning, everybody. Sorry, good morning. We're going to read where we left off last night. Remember I said that in chapter 3 of Philippians, there are two safety announcements, safety warnings. Uh, The second one is where we're going to begin our reading this morning. So this is Philippians chapter 3 and verse 17. And we're going to read through to the end of chapter 4. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and I tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord. In this way, dear friends, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. And yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from 
Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more is credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. So to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. All of us need role models, especially when we're young. We need them to help us to learn the basic skills we require in life. So we watch our mom and dad, we watch our older siblings if we have them, and then when we get into things like sport and music, we develop this, we we select a hero or somebody we want to be like. For me, I was a rather unusual uh, Irishman in that I was interested in cricket. And so my hero growing up was Jeffrey Boycott, that stubborn, obdurate Yorkshireman. And uh, I can remember as a boy, I wanted to, to bat like him. I wanted to open the batting for my school like him. I wanted to, to be that obdurate, stubborn person. So I tried to model myself on him. And of course, the rest is history. <laughs> my cricket disappeared with all my other sporting aspirations very early on. But you know the idea, the importance of imitating the right Models. And this is especially important when it comes to our spiritual life, when it comes to making progress spiritually. Many of you, especially those of you who are younger, you're in your teens and your 20s, it is absolutely critical that you choose the right models to imitate if you are concerned to make spiritual progress. In the previous chapter, Paul has called on all of us to, in effect, imitate Christ, to allow the mindset of Christ in how we relate to one another. The perfect, sinless example of Christ who didn't grasp onto his own rights as God, but became a voluntary slave. But here, when it comes to making spiritual progress, when it comes to spiritual growth, he calls on them to imitate him. Now, Paul is not setting himself up as a standard of perfection. And that, I think, is the point. Paul had to battle with personal sin. 
Paul had to live with the quirks of his own personality. Paul had to live with his history of spending years of his life investing in things he now considers as rubbish and worthless. Paul had to live with the memories of his wrong-headed and murderous past when he persecuted Christians thinking he was pleasing God. And I say this because all of us are living with something. All of us are. All of us are living. As we look back, if we allow ourselves to look back with things that we regret. All of us are living with ongoing struggles against the quirks of our personalities, against besetting things that trouble us and trouble our minds. But Paul has changed. His mindset has changed. His value system has changed. His desire now is to know Christ, to become like him, to know more and more each day of what it means to die with Christ so that he experiences more and more of what it means to live with Christ and experiences his resurrection life. And that is a process, a lifelong process process. We start somewhere. We end somewhere. If you think of the Old Testament characters of Jacob and Esau for a moment, who would you rather go on holidays with? (laughs) Jacob or Esau? I mean, Esau was a man's man. He was a hunter. He was a sportsman. He was an outdoors guy. And he was, it seems to be, quite a pleasant guy. Who wouldn't want to go on holiday with Esau? Jacob was a twister. You just never knew where you were with him. You'd need to hold on to your wallet and your passport when Jacob was around. Who made progress? New Testament tells us that Esau was a profane man. He had no time for God. He was a nice guy, naturally lots of attributes, but he had no time for God, no time for spiritual progress, no time for that birthright thing, no time for honoring God. Jacob, a twister with all kinds of complexes and difficulties, but he grew, he grew, he developed, maybe not a great deal but he grew. If that is your ambition, even with whatever you're living with, to grow, to become more and more like Jesus Christ, then there's help here. And the help is that we follow the right role models. Imitate me, says Paul. And keep your eyes on others. Others who live according to Paul's example. People, for example, like Timothy and Epaphroditus that he describes at the end of chapter 2. He says an interesting thing about Timothy there. He says that Timothy worked with me like a son with his father. And of course, that's 
how it was done in those days and still is in many respects these days, especially out in the country uh, with farming. A son uh, in the family tends to at least be expected to grow up to be like the father, to work with the father so that eventually the farm can be passed on. I know that doesn't always work. But Timothy had had that approach as a son to a father to learn from the older man, to learn from the, the person who was just a little bit further or perhaps a lot further along the line of spiritual progress. He wasn't perfect. But he was making progress. His desire, his burning desire was to be like Christ. You know people like that. Older people like that. People that you could model your life on. Make sure then you choose your role model as well when it comes to making spiritual progress because, says Paul, there are many who seem to be progressive but are actually living as enemies of the cross. These people, as Don Carson points out in his little helpful little commentary on Philippines, are probably not self-confessed unbelievers. Rather, they're most likely to be those who would claim to be Christian. Indeed, they might claim to be making Christian progress, but in fact, they are not. They make some kind of profession of faith. They have all kinds of spiritual language, but it isn't genuine. This is why Paul writes about them through tears, probably people he knows, and now weeps as he sees what they have become. How do we know that they're false and the wrong kind of model to follow. Well, it's not so much that they speak against the cross. It is that they walk as enemies of the cross. They live, in other words, as enemies of the cross. That is in stark contrast to Paul, whose desire is to know Christ and the fellowship of his suffering these people oppose the cross as the basic principle, not only of salvation, but of true spiritual progress. Paul is not talking about genuine believers who struggle against sin in their lives. We all struggle against sin in our lives. He's not talking about genuine believers who fail and fall and have to pick themselves up again and try again. Christians like me. He's not talking about that. These people aren't interested in struggle. These folks are not interested in fighting against wrongful desires. In fact, they don't believe that there are any wrongful desires in the end. How could there be wrongful desires? Because I'm the way God made me. So nothing can be wrong. These are people who simply do not accept that the flesh is under God's judgment. That salvation is only through being crucified and raised with Christ. These are people who are not prepared to say no to self. And Paul says their end is destruction. 
Because if they do not accept God's verdict on the flesh now, they will have to face it one day. They will perish. Paul takes no joy of talking about these people. There's no revenge in his voice. There's just tears in his voice. Their God is their belly, which probably means that it's the satisfaction of their individual desires and appetites is their chief good. They glory in the things that they ought to be ashamed about. But actually, these are people who try to remove that whole category of shame. The idea of the shame that Adam and Eve felt, they don't want to feel that. And so they try to strip that off. The biblical category of sin plays no part in their thinking. Or as someone told me after they came back from a teacher training session, day-long session, the core point is this, that they were told in dealing with children, there is no such thing as wrong behavior, just occasionally unwise choices. The category of wrong, the category of sin is being eradicated from our culture. We need to understand that. Let's make sure it's not eradicated from us. Let's make sure we don't accept the language of our culture and and start to change the categories. But we stay with God. These are people who want the both and of postmodernist thinking. And Christian movements that call themselves progressive rarely are. Indeed, anything that calls itself progressive, I'm clutching for my exit route. The new morality is the old morality. And salvation, if they think of it at all, is for them a form of self-improvement, which at the same time is a form of self-indulgence. And sadly, behind the veil of spiritual talk and religiosity, there can, as we know too well, be deep immorality going on. Professing Christian leaders thinking that they are above morality because of their ecclesiastical position. This is to be an enemy of the cross. Whatever theology we espouse, because there's no interest in being like Christ, there's no interest in being like Paul, conformed to Christ's cross and his resurrection. Their minds, says Paul, finally, are set on earthly things. Now, let's not misunderstand them. Not all earthly things are bad. To enjoy gardening, sport, fashion, music, it's not necessarily to have your mind set on earthly things. Paul's point is that their basic mindset is that of people for whom this world is all there is. 
And you can tell it from the direction of their life. Perhaps some of us remember Carl Sagan's famous opening to the program Cosmos. The universe is all there is, was, or ever shall be. Materialism. Nothing beyond that. Nothing beyond this life. This is the mindset of materialism, and it surrounds us in our culture. It has been consumed by our culture to the point where it is the default position. And that is a tremendous pressure. We can go through day after day after day hearing no reference at all to the transcendent. Everything is locked in here. What's the answer? That's the false. That's to be an enemy of the cross. What's the answer? The answer is the true mindset. And by true, I mean the mindset that is according to actual reality. It's a mindset based on the fact that our true community and home is not in this world. It is in heaven. Our citizenship, our commonwealth, our community, our home, Our statehood is in heaven. So important that we grasp that. Especially when the pressure mounts. Especially when, like the Philippines, you're feeling the pressure in society. And they were feeling it even to the point of actual persecution. And Jesus was aware of that. When the disciples finally came to that public confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, it was at that moment that Jesus started to talk to them about the fact that if they were going to come after him, they would have to say no to themselves, take up their cross and follow him. It was at that moment that he started to talk about the fact that he was going to go to Jerusalem and be rejected by the authorities there. And Peter couldn't take it any longer. And he opposed him and said, Lord, this is not going to happen. This, 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 this is just crazy stuff. And Jesus said to Peter, Peter, you're thinking the way the world thinks. Not the way God thinks. And to reinforce the point, He said to his disciples, in a few days, some of you, without tasting death, are going to see the kingdom of God. And a week later, he took Peter, James, and John, and he took them up a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, he was transformed before them. His face shone above the brightness of the sun. His clothing became so white, as Mark puts it, that no laundry on earth could get them as white. And suddenly it was as if the veil was torn that normally separates us from the reality of the eternal world. And they were given to see the kingdom of God. It changed their lives. And Peter made it his ambition, he says in his letter, I'm going to keep telling you the story of this, uh, to try to make sure that even when I die, you'll remember it. There is an eternal kingdom. It is real. In fact, it is more real than this earth. When they were up that mountain, suddenly a cloud appeared and they were swept into it. 
You ever stood at the bottom of a tall building looking up on a kind of sunny day with clouds and you look up and the clouds are moving past and then you're beginning to wonder what on the earth is moving here and you begin to disorientate it and you have to look down again to get a sense of balance and direction and stability. The real stability was in that cloud. The reality of the eternal kingdom of God. You see, we think that this stuff, this is real. This is what we know. This is reality. And as we listen to the messages that come to us through social media, through our friends, our colleagues in work, and the way we just conduct our our lives, it seems to us that all of life is here. This is supreme reality. When it isn't, there is an eternal kingdom. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we need to get that fixed in our minds. No person five minutes after their death will have any doubt as to the reality of the eternal kingdom. The challenge is to perceive it before we die. The challenge is to step out in the knowledge that I'm not up against it here. I am not limited by the horizon of death. I am not limited by what the politicians decide to do. My citizenship is in heaven. And since my citizenship is there, Paul is making sure that my prime allegiance is there also. We are waiting, says Paul, are we? Are we eagerly awaiting? Do you know when I was small and people talked about the coming of Christ, I have to confess my sin here. I just wanted, you know, could you just keep that back a little while because I want to marry Heather. Could you just wait? (laughs) You know, I mean, that's great you're coming, but I... (laughs) You, you, You know what I mean? And then you go through periods in church life where nobody really ever talks about the coming of Christ and nobody teaches about it. Perhaps because there's been so much controversy and all these charts and different theories and Gorbachev was the Antichrist and all sorts of other stuff. And some of you remember all of that and and none of it happened and all these predictions in the end, you just all push it to the side. And instead of being a living dynamic, as Paul puts it here, we're eagerly awaiting. Well, we're not actually. It's become a kind of, well, when I die, I go to heaven. That'll be nice. But you know what? This world's more important to me. Really? We are eagerly awaiting. And what are we waiting for? We're waiting for a savior. What's he going to do? Well, this savior is going to take this physical body and he's going to transform it. This is an incredible gospel. Have you ever really thought about this? I mean, our human bodies are important. It's very hard to do anything without one. You probably noticed that. Um, We need them, but they're all dysfunctional in some way or other, and things start to go wrong, and we realize that. We see what it could be like, but we know what it actually is like, 
And yet we follow Christ in this and, and we struggle also with, with this old flesh, the old rebellious flesh that's in us, that's, that's a rebel against God. What this gospel is, is not simply a gospel of forgiveness that when we die, we'll go to heaven. But it's a gospel whereby in the end, these physical bodies of ours are going to be transformed to be like his glorious body. What a fantastic thing this is. Now you're probably saying he's only saying that because now he's 66. He's had operations, things are going wrong. Well, if anybody needs a new body, he needs one. <laughs> but isn't this, isn't this exciting? This culture is perpetuating the myth that we're going to be here forever, that we can do anything through medical science to make us here forever, that if we add this product and that product, we can maintain the body beautiful for as long as possible. And that's all it thinks about, the mindset of this world. Our mindset is that of citizens of heaven. And you know what? That's going to mean that we are going to look stunning one day. And yes, of course, we want to care for this body. It's a temple of the Holy Spirit. Imagine the Holy Spirit being prepared to live inside these bodies of ours now. Isn't that an amazing thing? But one day, to have a body like Christ's body. Have you ever had a look at what we're told about the body of Christ after his resurrection? It's just amazing. You know, the disciples thought it was some kind of spirit, a ghost. And Jesus said to them, listen, a spirit doesn't have flesh and bone as I have. And he proceeded to eat fish. Can you imagine Harry's shack in heaven? (laughs) Our imaginations are so limited. We are given little glimpses because, of course, the thing is so explosive that our brains couldn't take it. But we're given little hints about what that body is going to be like. In that body, he was able to interact between two worlds. This is amazing. This is the stuff of science fiction. This is Star Trek. But this is real. That kind of a body, a glorious body, You know, if you could see the person sitting in the seat beside you as they one day will be, you would be tempted to fall off the seat and worship them. Don't, don't. (laughs) But how little concept sometimes we have of the inheritance that's kept for us incorruptible. We're born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and to an inheritance. And it's that hope that is to fill our heart and drive us on when life gets pressurized and things get difficult. But I need to move on because I could just camp here forever. What a wonderful way then to move into chapter four. We come down to earth with a bump. But it might be a useful role model, mightn't it? And when we're dealing with all the practicalities of partnering in the gospel together, just to make sure that we firmly clear in our mind that our citizenship is in heaven, the driving desire to know Christ and that focus on our heavenly citizenship and calling does not relieve us 
of the necessity of facing the practical realities of life in this world. And Paul talks about some of those that come up particularly in the context of partnering in the gospel. Because as you engage, as you engage in church life, as you engage in partnering with missions, as you engage in evangelistic projects, these things arise and you become more and more aware of them. And one of the most difficult is when believers fall out with each other. Now, we're not told by Paul what the issue was. I think it's unlikely that it was a major theological issue, otherwise he would have addressed it. It's probably more likely that it was an issue of tactics. Let's hope it wasn't personality. It's amazing the things that Christians can fight over. But tactics, because these women were not lazy Christians. They're not worldly Christians, as we might say, apathetic. These were keen women. Now, please, ladies present, Paul is not saying that the only people who ever fall out are women, just in case anybody got that. He's just using an example, and he's using it probably because it had become such a big issue that it was really affecting the whole church. And these things tend to, whether it's between women or men, or men and women, don't overlook the details and hope that things will go away, because very often they don't, and often they arise up, and what started as a small thing develops into a big thing, and entrenched opinions perhaps about tactics in our partnering in the gospel and how we should do it, and people lock heads, and it becomes extremely difficult. Let's just notice a few things. First of all, Paul speaks highly of both of them. He doesn't take sides. This is not a theological issue of what's right and gospel truth and what isn't. Some of us don't know how to praise anybody. Maybe we should learn just to start. Oh, I don't want him to get a big head. Well, there's obviously no chance with you around. <laughs> learn how to praise in the right way to, so that it's encouraging and it's not sentimental flattery. But learn how to do it. Look at how warmly Paul commands these folks. But people who are disagreeing need help. So Paul calls for other Christian workers to help and not simply abandon them. And he appeals particularly to his true companion. Who is that? We don't know. Probably, possibly Epaphroditus himself. One of their own who cared deeply for them, who loved them, who had been with Paul, and now Paul was sending him back, and he had been ill in the course of completing their service to Paul, and he was concerned now that they were worrying about him, so Paul was sending him back so that he wouldn't be worried. So if it was Epaphroditus, if it was, what a wonderful qualities he had, someone who actually loved them and prayed for them 
a person to receive with joy and honor because he risked his life in service for them. So they need help, encouragement, help. And then Paul appeals to them to be of one mind in the Lord. Which Lord is this? Well, this is the Lord who did not grasp onto his rights. This is the Lord who made himself nothing. This is the Lord who became a voluntary slave. Be of one mind in that Lord. You see, however important our work for the Lord is. We need to keep things in proportion by remembering that much more important than our work over which we may disagree is the fact that our names are in the book of life. That's the big thing. And that we are in and under the same Lord. And if we're citizens of heaven, then surely on earth we can get on together. In that context, Paul talks then about how to experience the peace of God. Let me just note the headlines before coming to the end. The first thing, rejoice in the Lord. Keep that. Don't let the conflict take your eyes off him or your mind and heart from rejoicing. We need that. Second, Remember, the Lord is at hand. Therefore, we can be gentle. The Lord is at our elbow, perhaps, is what this means. He's right there. So let your gentleness be known to everybody. Or another translation has it, perhaps more accurately, let your reasonableness be known. Are you known as a reasonable person? Well, work at it. Work at it. That's what Paul is saying. Work at this. It's critically important in order to create an atmosphere where peace can happen. I've met some people who see themselves as God's gift to the church in the sense that, well, I'm just contrarian and thran. And I see myself as the person who's going to, you know, keep the elders accountable and really ask them hard questions. And really? Let your reasonableness be known. Your gentleness be known. Third, turn the anxiety that these things can give rise to. And if you've been in church leadership as long as I have been, you'll know a lot about this. Look at my hair color. Turn anxiety into prayer. Teaching colleague of mine used to repeat, why pray when you can worry? And we get so used to worrying that even when it comes to prayer, it ends up being a worry session on our knees instead of a presentation to God of the things that we're going through in our lives. If we do that, we will know his peace. That doesn't mean the absence of conflict. It means the peace of God. It means that his peace will protect and garrison our hearts in Christ as we move our way through the storm. And then from experiencing the peace of God, Paul moves to how we cultivate the presence of the God of peace. And the first thing there is that we fill our minds positively with good things. 
Have you ever read about King Solomon? 1 Kings 4 says this, Solomon, these are in his good days before he ran after all sorts of unsuitable women and the things, his heart just went wrong. But in his good days, he spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs numbered 1,005. What's about that for songwriting? He spoke about plant life from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the walls. He also spoke about animals and birds, reptiles and fish from all nations. People came to listen to Solomon's wisdom sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. Solomon filled his mind with good things. Paul is not saying fill your minds with verses of the Bible simply or fill your minds with Getty songs or fill your minds with spiritual thoughts. He's saying things that are good. What do you fill your minds with? The stuff that goes on Twitter. The vile stuff that's reproduced constantly through social media. If we allow our minds to get filled with that stuff, it will have an effect on us. And it's no wonder we have no sense of the God of peace. It's no wonder it builds into the anxiety and the insecurity and the poor self-image and the lack of confidence and all those other things because we fill our heads with the wrong stuff. Switch it off. Turn off your Facebook page for a year. Come off Instagram. Stop twittering. Do you know, you'll not die if you do. Put away the phone and engage in conversation around the table. Invest getting your head full of good things, beautiful things. There's so much that is good. And you know, if you do that, you'll become a more interesting person. And that will feed into your conversations with non-Christians around the dinner table. Because like Solomon... You'll have stuff to talk about. Finally, let me just mention a word on this for two minutes. Another area that can produce great pressure and anxiety is the area of finance. Paul leaves it to the end to talk about, but he does talk about it. And he gives us certain key things that are very important. Number one, be grateful for financial support. This is about his mindset towards financial support and partnership in gospel work. Number one, be grateful for it. Do not develop a kind of sense of entitlement. If you're a young person looking at Christian ministry and thinking that, oh, this is you just fancy, you know, sitting around drinking coffee and strumming your guitar, and you're the God's gift to music and to world evangelization. Get a job. <laughs> Grow up. Work. That's not the prophet Elijah speaking to you. It's just is just me. You know what I mean? God may well be calling some of you and so on, but be careful. Do not allow a sense of entitlement and then, and then when people don't respond, as you know, nobody really understands and so on. So Paul is grateful for it. Learn, secondly, how to be independent and content with little or nothing. Learn it. It's hard to learn. I'm still learning. Our finances over the years have fluctuated greatly 
both when we were in normal employment, as I did for many years as a school teacher before eventually uh, being supported by the church, and then when we were supported by the church, my wife contracted cancer. She wasn't able to work. My salary plunged. These are realities, but they're realities in which you learn stuff. It's important. This is part of it. Learn how to be independent and content with little or nothing. Thirdly, encourage believers to support gospel workers and gospel work. You have an opportunity now as you leave this tent. There are buckets at the door. That's for New Horizon, as Paul has said, and this is not just about that. But take it seriously. The use of finance is one of the most underestimated tools for developing significant partnerships in the gospel. And all over the place, there are gospel works that are struggling because of the lack of investment. And here's an opportunity at New Horizon with the missions and with New Horizon itself and beyond to think about this. Paul was not these people's pastor. But time and time again, they sent money to support him in his work. Could you develop that kind of relationship with a young person, perhaps? He's maybe gifted in a way that you aren't. He's moving in that direction, but is paying a heavy price. And he and his wife are struggling to make ends meet. Could you get alongside that person and pay their mortgage for three years? and invest in a lifelong gospel partnership. I think of those who invested in Heather and I over the years, and it would bring me to tears to think about the different people, both in family and beyond family, who somehow sensed before God that something was needed. It's very humbling. I'm so grateful. But there's so many out there. Could you think about it? Instead of buying a second retirement home, could you think in terms of how you could invest that for the eternal kingdom of God and do as Jesus said in the parable of the unjust manager, make friends with the mammon of unrighteousness. Make friends with unrighteous money. All money is tainted at somewhere along the line, but turn it, transform it so that you are investing in eternity and people will come up and say, you don't know me, but remember you were at New Horizon, you put money in and New Horizon was invested in this particular mission and I came to know Christ through that and I want to thank you. Do you know when that happens? You'll be thinking, I wish I'd given more. I wish I'd had a, a mindset that saw myself as a citizen of heaven and you know what? I want to encourage a whole lot more citizens to come. Gospel partnership involving not just prayer, not just talking, not just developing our relationship, not just our our personal desire to be more and more like Christ, but involving our wallet, involving the direction of our life, involving downsizing, involving readdressing how we're actually using our funding involving investing in the eternal kingdom of God because it's real. But if we think, well, I know heaven, but, you know, 
this world is more interesting to me. And we've lost sight of our citizenship. Paul ends this letter with talking about all the people of God. He repeats it. I love that. All the people of God. One of the great things about New Horizon is the breadth of its appeal. Hopefully we're not sitting in little silos <laughs> according to the ism we have at the end of our name. It's wonderful to see. I want to thank you, thank the board for their kindness under God of allowing me to participate in this event. This has been humbling for me, stretching. It's just been amazing. For all the folks who've been in the prayer tent who have prayed for... I've never in my life had the sense of a praying team of people quite like this. That's not to criticize my own church. Of course it's not. And many of them are here and many of them have been praying for months for this. But it's just so amazing, so humbling for Heather and I to be part of it, to be included. So thank you for that. Thank you for your kindness, for your encouragement. All the people of God. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all to his glory. Amen.